0: We also saw some benefits of coaching, particularly coaching when women came back from maternity leave. So what we saw in our stats there is that when women had coaching available to them, when they returned from maternity leave, that significantly improved their resilience. And it also significantly reduced their turnover intentions in the workplace. So there's quite sort of quantifiable benefits to having coaching, particularly at times of pre-transition.
1: Job Hunting Podcast, a weekly resource to help you job hunt and advance in your career. I'm your host, Renata Bernardi, a former CEO and senior executive turned career coach and job hunting expert. I'm helping you earn more, become more employable and achieve your career goals faster with less stress and less guesswork. Do you want to get my client's job search starter pack? Go to my website, renatabernardi.com and download it now start making successful plans for your future. Now sit back, relax, and let's dive right in. Why are we not seeing more positive outcomes for women in the workforce? Are mental health, well-being, and performance for women issues that the employers can help with so that they can overcome the barriers to entry for senior positions? These are some of the questions that Carly Mulang and Alessandro Gio asked employers in Australia, and their key findings is now available in a report called Working Women and Wellbeing, which you can find in the links below in the episode show notes. And in this episode, I interview Carly and Alessandro to understand more about what women and their employers can do to overcome gender issues in the workplace. I wanted to know more about Carly's career, Alessandra's career, how they started their research together and what they found. What were the recommendations that we can apply for both the employers seeking to better support women and minorities, as well as women and minorities looking for employment? Are there red flags that can identify good and bad employers for women when they're applying for jobs, for example, and moving up in the career ladder? I hope that you enjoyed this episode as much as I did. I've been trying to organize this for quite some time with Carly and Ali, but because of lockdowns and, you know, people working from home with families and all of that, either from my side or from their side, it took months for us to be able to manage and organize this. So I'm very, very grateful to both of them for making the time to speak to me and therefore speak to you as well. This is a very important episode. I would say it's part of a series of episodes that we have done before on women's issues. There are other episodes that I've linked below for you with Div Pillai, Michelle Redfern, Sonali Shah, Susan Colantuono. And there's also an episode with my friend Jacob Thomas about issues in the corporate uh, workforce for queer professionals. So have a look at those if you're interested in these themes and if they, if they help you um, be better at career progression, job hunting and career advancement. If there's anything that I can do for you, of course, don't hesitate to get in touch with me. Remember to subscribe to my newsletter. There's a link to my newsletter below. I will send you every single new episode of the job hunting podcast as they come out weekly. So it's a weekly podcast and a weekly newsletter. And I also send you a curated list of articles that I think are important for career professionals to read and um, get updated on things that might find their way into equipping them for promotions and for job hunting opportunities in the future. So sign up to my newsletter. There's a link there below, or you can find it on RenatoBernardi.com, which is my website. All right, without further ado, I hope you enjoy this episode with Kali and Ali. All right, my friends, I'm happy that we finally made it. This is a long time in the making, isn't it, Kali?
0: Oh yes, yes, it's
1: good to be here finally. Yes, it's what, maybe since the end of last year that we've been talking about doing this podcast, mm-hmm. so I'm very happy that we're finally doing it. But why don't we start by both of you one at a time, uh, introduce yourselves and tell the listeners a little bit about your careers. Why don't we start with Carly first? Okay.
0: I'm Kali Mulang. Uh, My career started back in the late 90s when I did a degree in accounting and public sector financial management. And then I worked in a big four accounting firm. And after a while, I decided to go back to university and do an honours degree. And then in 2001, I came to Monash University in Melbourne, Australia, to take up an assistant lecturer position and to do my PhD. So I've been at Monash now for 20 years. Um, I obviously finished my PhD and gradually got promoted through the ranks. And I'm currently an associate professor at the Monash Business School and I've also recently done a graduate diploma in psychology in the medical faculty at Monash because my research is multidisciplinary but psychologically based. So I have a lot of interest, but one of the things uh, that I am particularly interested in is well-being in the workplace, and that relates a little bit to the topic that we're talking about today.
1: Excellent. What about you, Alessandra? Tell us about your career so far.
2: Thank you. Thanks for having us on your podcast. So yeah, my name is Alessandro Guillo. As you can guess from my accent, I'm European. So I grew up between France and Italy. And also my academic career started there. I did the first PhD in management at the University of Pisa, in Pisa, and the second PhD in financial accounting in Paris at the SEC. And I went to the States for a year, in Indiana, exploring the Midwest, and then I arrived to Melbourne four years ago, where I've been a lecturer, and now I'm an assistant professor at Laval University in Quebec, in Canada, so a bit across the globe, and my research is mostly around diversity, and my interests are about uh, LGBTQI in professional service firms, as well as gender issues and particularly women's well-being, and, which is part of the talk of today and the amazing work that Carly and I are doing in this field.
1: Alessandro, what made you and Carly work together? How did it all start?
2: It all started, actually, on a kitchen conversation. I was just thinking yesterday, we are near the kitchen of the office, of so pre-COVID, when we could still have informal chats, <laughs> and so I've been working a bit on sexual sexual identity in the accounting profession, and I knew that Carla's long time experience in gender issues is something that really fascinated me. So we started discussing, we started discussing our different interests and uh, why we still observe that women and LGBTQI are so little represented in the higher ranks in uh, accounting and professional service firms. And so we want to explore more of that and also explore not only from a performance base. Like We have a lot of studies showing more women or more diversity leads to better performance. But what else besides return on assets or return on equity? How can we explore well-being? How can we explore resilience? How can we explore burnout? And Carly with her psychological background, myself with my, more, my background in sociology and management, we thought it was a great combo
1: interesting Carly what interests you in the gender studies I mean you started in accounting uh, what made you get interested in this is it part of also your professional experience before joining academia but also maybe even during academia that made you interested in the gender issues in your profession
0: well, what made me particularly interested is the fact that you know, I've been teaching now for just over twenty years, and looking at the cohort of my students over those years, it's always been around fifty percent females. And then, you know, we look at the co uh, the gender split in professional associations like CPA Australia, where there's forty nine percent females. And then we look at the accounting firms, and if we look at the top 100 accounting firms, we only have 14% who have women partners. And so when Alexandra and I started talking about this, we're like, you know, what's going on here? Why are we not seeing Um, a better representation of women at these more senior levels of accounting firms. And not only that, 43% of that top 100 accounting firms have no female partners. And so that really got us interested in this topic, particularly because we know that organisations are investing more money in having more formal supports in place to support women in the workplace. So despite having this growth in formal supports for things like flexible working arrangements, carers' leave, maternity leave, why are we not seeing better outcomes for women? So really it was that curiosity that drove this project and drove our interest uh, in this
1: area, yes. I re- I don't know if you remember, Carly. I used to work at the Institute of Chartered Accountants back in 2010 to 2012. I do. And at that time, we still we were still looking at parity in the graduate intake of women and men in from you know high school getting into university and then from university getting into graduate opportunities with CA firms, chartered accounting firms. And part of my role as a career marketing relationship manager was also to bring in uh, regional kids that to add that diversity, and indigenous kids to add that diversity. And we did a lot of interesting uh, pipelines to bring them in. But once they reached, let's say, KPMG or one of the big four, there wasn't the support system there for that type of new graduate, the graduate that had blue blue collar parents or came from regional Australia or were from indigenous communities and required maybe more leave than, you know, if if an auntie passed away and they had to go back to their country, they had to go back for five weeks. And KPM, KPMG wasn't ready for that. I, I, I know we're kind of a bit off topic, but I'm actually very curious to know if things have improved in that sense, because that's like 10 years ago, more or more.
0: Look, I think it may have improved in that more attention has been paid to providing more formal supports. Um, when it comes to practically speaking, though, and this is something that's really come out in our research and it's that the formal supports are not enough to impact particularly well-being and resilience at work. And our well-being and resilience impacts our, um, our outcomes, like the extent to which we might get burnt out, to our um, engagement within the workforce and our turnover intentions. So one of the key things that we've found in our study is that just having those formal supports and policies that you might have in place, they're not enough, you need to have a culture that also supports the individual. And perhaps that's what you're saying that might have been lacking back then. I mean, we still see similar problems now. So we're still seeing that a lot of the support that's needed in organisations would be considered like informal supports. So that consists of things like culture, a little bit like you're talking about there. Other informal supports that we've found that are really important to well-being include supportive leadership, having psychological safety in the workplace. So that's the shared belief that you're safe from interpersonal risk taking at work and having autonomy within your work role.
1: Yes. Now, I think that I'm glad that you mentioned culture and not policy, because you would expect work environments to have outdated policies. But if there's a good culture in place, there will be opportunities to bypass the old fashioned policies and to reinvent, uh, you know, the structures and the protocols to adapt ongoing, to make the workplace more diverse. Alessandro, is there anything that you would like to add to that first uh, introduction to your research that Carly has just given us?
2: Uh, maybe just a point, uh, just to expand a bit more. Let, uh, an example, like we compare big four to non big four. So, big four like KPMG that you were mentioning before, EY, and uh, PWC and Deloitte. And we show that these big firms have much more policies uh, than non big four. At the same time, when we look at the well being and the resilience of women in these workplaces, in big four is much lower than in non big four. So, what we show is that uh, formal practices per se are not enough. What really makes a difference, as Carly was saying, and this is evident in non big four. Is the culture, is the leadership support and the psychological safety. So one of the key takeaway as well is that uh, we cannot delegate this to HR policy and that leadership and uh, leaders, people at the top of the firm, needs to support the well-being in the workplace.
1: Did you find that surprising? Was that a surprising outcome of your research? I'm not surprised, you know maybe because I had that experience working with the mid tier firms and the top tier firms. And I mean, you work at Monash University. You know exactly what I mean by bricks and mortar and you know, the institutionalized culture that's kind of ingrained everywhere, especially if you're a multinational, you have to operate across country, across borders. You tend to have more sort of more established policies. It's I don't know. It's m- might be counterintuitive for some but for me like when I I remember when I had a very out of the box young graduate that was brilliant I knew that it was going to be taken up by the MITIA. It was never, you know, a candidate that the top four would accept. So I'm I wasn't surprised but was it surprising to you?
2: I would say that this was a bit surprising because they Put a lot of resources both human and financial and they are aware of this problem that they don't retain women or women they have a quite a lot of women in consulting as a level but not at partner or director level and they keep questioning this and they put a lot of resources but clearly it's the culture the competition which it's still there and it's not changed. So that is the harder work that the leadership should do. And then also another surprising fact: I would say that uh, we look into flexible work arrangements. Now we are all familiar with COVID, which before were a very gender thing because mostly women would take because uh, they have care and responsibilities. Still today, is on their cha- on their shoulders. And so we show that actually flexible work arrangement lead to more well being. So actually they uh, women would experience more better work environment, more engagement. But at the same time, they lead to more burnout. Mm-hmm. Because probably they have to jiggle through many, many things. Home and uh, work, the boundaries blurred, and we all know this with Zoom and COVID. Yeah. But so it's something that firms need clearly to be aware.
1: Yes. Well, despite the fact that you have found that the culture seems more, well, challenging in the big four than in the mid-tier accounting firms, did you find that that also reflected or correlated with the seniority of the women? Are there more senior women in mid-tier than in the big four? Carly, do you want to answer that? Because sometimes they would have affirmative actions in place anyway. And, you know, they would have more women, even though the culture doesn't seem to be quite right.
0: I guess we didn't sort of look at that specifically in our study, but we did see a lot of women in those firms who were ex-Big Four and the reasons for why they they moved to non-Big Four firms was primarily because um, they didn't feel supported enough in their role and they found it very hard to have work-life balance in that type of environment. So we definitely saw a lot of women leave for that reason. And also because there was lack of opportunity to have part-time work in a lot of um, big four firms as well. So that's a real missed opportunity that we see for a lot of firms where a lot of women sort of drop off because they decide to, you know, work part-time and that that's, Um, A better fit for them while, you know, perhaps their children are young or at primary school. And they found it pretty much impossible to get part-time leadership roles in large firms. And that was often what motivated a move to a smaller or mid-tier firm.
1: Yes, right. And when they exit the organisation, where do they go? Do they remain working as chartered accountants or they move to operational roles? What's the outcome? I mean, I don't know if you've looked into it, but I'm curious. I guess
0: we didn't look um, at that specifically, but a lot of them continue working as accountants, but in smaller firms and smaller firms that tend to have a lot stronger informal aspects which are supportive to them so just being much more flexible when it comes to things like flexible working arrangements. It was interesting we've actually um, received a bunch of reflections from the women who were involved in our study about how COVID impacted their careers and one woman said that A colleague of hers had been asking for flexible work arrangements, you know, for the last 10 years and had kept being told, no, because it's going to impact your productivity. And then all of a sudden, overnight, everybody was working from home and, you know, productivity didn't skip a beat. And so a lot of these things have been very difficult for women to arrange in a lot of these larger firms where smaller firms just tend to be more flexible and have a more supportive culture when it comes to our work-life balance and having to you know, leave early to pick up children, those sorts of things.
1: Yeah. So what what was the recommendation for for from your research to employers and to women? What would you say the top recommendations were for employers? Alessandra, can you let us know?
2: Yeah, I would say that there are a number of recommendations. So, so first of all, I would say that uh, even for those women that remain and reach the highest partnership uh, level, firms need to give them a seat of the decision at the decision table. Mm-hmm. Why is this? Because we show that, actually, even women that are partner, when they end up being in non-decision-maker roles, like uh, uh, communication, HR, whereas men, even at similar levels in your senior leadership, take the strategic decision. So first of all, women uh, need to be able to, uh, to give them the possibility to take decisions. Mm-hmm. Second, also looking at flexible working arrangement, uh, easier access to caring days, because uh, it's too hard at the moment. It's too complicated to get access to caring days, uh, which will not affect productivity. On the contrary, it will help to better reconcile work and uh, work-life balance. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, a change in culture. So leadership support, It's to change that culture of long hours, of competition, of uh, just showing off at network events after hours, which often are not accessible to women because they still have a responsibility and creates these uh, invisible barriers to get promoted. So Mm -hmm. definitely we need to change our culture in professional service firms and policies are not enough.
1: Yes. I'd like to add that, you know, um, even though I think all of what you're saying is right, what I also believe is that women have been conditioned to act in a certain way up to maybe um, a generation or two ago. I think that, you know, I'm really... We're so impressed with the young women coming into the workforce right now. I think they're absolutely brilliant. But women of my generation, for example, would have access to going to networking events or being able to, you know, engage in that sort of social aspect that usually allow them to progress in their careers, but they wouldn't know how important that is. I'll give you an example. I worked at Ceda, which is an organization in Australia that organizes lots of very important networking opportunities because it's a it's a platform for politicians and industry leaders to deliver white papers or new policies or you know whatever big agenda that a premier would have. So there would usually be 200 400 people in a room. Women were always the first one to leave the room. You know, 2, 2 p.m. It went from 12 to 2. At 2 p.m., you would see women starting to leave. So they, would, they were there just for the delivery of the information. They would arrive just in time, and then they would leave as soon as the event was over. And that chit-chat that happens at the beginning and at the end of those events that are really important for your career advancement, they would miss out on that because they were given an opportunity to attend, most likely paid by their employers. KPMG or a law firm or an engineering firm but it didn't click and and I can you understand that I as a mother of two <laughs> I can completely understand that they felt like they had to be there but they also had to finish work because they needed to leave on time to you know get get the kids from after school care and go home and all of that and that kind of really impacts women's ability to grow professionally and grow their network to do I think, sideways. I to think the you're top right. That men do.
0: Yeah, well, that's something that sort of came out of our recent findings when women reflected on how COVID impacted their career. And if anything, it's created a more level playing field when it comes to. Not being able to attend networking events like that in person or needing to leave early or perhaps not being involved in some other social aspects of work like uh, golf days and all these sorts of things that can often go ahead, which are primarily male dominated, which means that a lot of women often miss out on those events. You know, not having the ability to hold those events during COVID has meant that um, women have been, you know, are more on a level playing field when it comes to things like promotions Mm. now, because in terms of that social side, which they can find challenging, you know, that's no longer as much of a barrier (laughs) as long as we don't have these, you know, social events in person, I guess.
1: Yes, uh, the, the whole conversation and the, the structure of career advancement and promotions is really biased towards a more, you know, masculine way of operating. I remember supporting a very senior leader, female, and we used to walk into these boardrooms and it was just the two of us, female, and then all the other one, guys, you know, in the room were talking about either footy or golf for 15 minutes. And not looking at her or not looking at me. And until they exhausted all of the news about the weekend's foodie results and their golfing stuff, they wouldn't start the meeting. Didn't matter that she was the actual senior person in the room. And it took her maybe a year to change that dynamic. And then all of a sudden, because she liked uh, cycling so much, cycling wasn't big back then. Now it's all about everybody talks about cycling all the time. But she found something that was in common between everyone that they could then chit chat about. And and I'm not sure that the men in the, the all the men in the room realized how excluded we both felt for you know. A big part of her first year in that tenure, and it was really excruciating. And we used to walk out of that meeting and just think, roll our eyes like, oh, my God, I can't believe we have to go through that again. And I wondered (laughs) and I wrote about this on LinkedIn. I'll put a link to it below what would happen if we would walk into a meeting, Carly, you and I, a bunch of girls with just one or two men, and we would talk about makeup, or I'm not saying that's all women talk about. But definitely, that's all I talk about. If I could, I would talk about makeup all the time, or whatever online shopping I did, or, and that would never fly, right? That would, that would be perceived as me not being professional in the workplace. So I find that, you know, there's this dichotomy that also when I'm supporting clients that come from other countries, I need to explain to them what the small talk is like in Australia. And I'll, I'll give you an example of a woman that I'm coaching and she's European, Alessandra. So <laughs> she said, it's really interesting. The recruiter call, sends me an email and say, let's have a casual catch up over the phone. And the the catch up is not casual at all. It's really like they just go straight on, why are you applying for this role? And I thought it was casual. I was ready to be casual. (laughs) I wasn't ready to answer interview-like questions. So, you know, it's those sort of cultural things that we don't, we take for granted that people come from France and they would not understand that casual is not actually casual. It's part of the interviewing process.
0: I think another thing that we've noticed as well when it has come to COVID and how that's impacted the workplace is that women have become sort of in charge of a lot of the emotional labor that occurs in the workplace. It's the women in the teams who feel responsible for the well-being of teams or the well-being of their workforce. And so women's work has significantly increased because carrying the emotional labour in a workplace, it's tends to be unappreciated, but a massive task. There's an opportunity cost, of course, for all of your time. Mm. And women are spending more and more time on this emotional work in the workplace. And I think that that has become a significant gendered burden on women. And that increases a lot of pressure for them as well, because, you know, it takes up their time. It's very emotionally taxing. And it has sort of, it has become like a woman's thing, a woman's task. Yeah. So I think that that's another big challenge that we're seeing in the workplace that mm. has come about in the last year
1: as well. And Carly, in terms of the recommendations for women, I'm very interested to know what you have to say, because I don't know if you've seen the recent research that came out last week about the employee sentiment and how executives and professionals are ready to jump out of their current jobs and find new opportunities. So that research shows that 41% of white-collar workers in the U.S. are keen to move jobs. So if if you think about 41%, 21% are probably women, what do you think they they should look out for? What are the red flags that would indicate that the culture is not right for them?
0: So, I think that something like COVID has really identified some problems that there can be in the workplace. And and one of the red flags, I think, are unreasonable expectations from workplaces. So, one of the things that came out of our research, which didn't terribly surprise us, but did upset us, is the expectation that burnout is normal. Like, everybody expected to become burnt out in their work role. And that that wasn't seen as something where we should try to avoid this or what is actually causing burnout. So there's significant workload in a lot of places and significant burnout. And a part of that comes about by having unreasonable workloads, unreasonable expectations. This has been blown out with COVID as well. We were expected to be available all the time and available online all the time blurring those boundaries between home and work. And so that definitely would be uh, a red flag. So trying to ascertain what the actual expectations are from the workplace, how flexible they are when it comes to where and how you go about your work. Uh, Another red flag for me would be high turnover and also just looking again at the demographic of the workforce. If I saw a significant amount of junior women but then I looked at the mid and later career levels and did not see women there or saw what Alexandra alluded to earlier where women may be at senior levels but they're not in decision-making roles So something that came out from our interviews in accounting firms is that men tend to be in charge of profit centres and women are in charge of cost centres. And so if I saw that, you know, that's giving me a signal that, you know, there's not great equality when it comes to the workplace, even though you may see women and men technically on similar levels. It's the decision making power of their roles that, that differ. And so I would want to be seeing more equality at those more senior decision-making levels, I think. And I'd also, something that came out in our study, which is also concerning, is a lot of stigma still when it comes to part-time roles for women. I would like to see more women in leadership, part-time roles in workplaces. And I think that that better supports more quality and diversity in the workforce. And so, yeah, I think that that's something else I'd look out for. Are there
1: good examples, companies uh, that we can look up to and say, because in Australia we have, you know, the best place to work for women, there's like a ranking system. Did you look into that to see if, no?
0: No, that wasn't really (laughs) a part of the research. No, that's like the scope.
1: And the other thing that I I'm fascinated by because I am now you know quite close to uh, Susan Colantuono who has done this research and then presented on TED I think there's like 14 million views I I I mention this TED talk all the time and it's called the missing 33%. It's the fact that so much of the professional development available for women internally, you know, those sort of um, things that you you have at Monash, that every organization has, tend to focus on soft skills. So, you know, the mentoring that they get, the the soft skills development, the leaderships, and, and then they apply for the promotions, they don't get it. And they actually fail to mention all their business acumen you know, what you mentioned before about that commercial nows. I mean, this is, we're talking about chartered accountants, right? So if you're listening from the U.S., you know, these are female CPA uh, professionals. They have failed to mention that because they just, they took it as a given. Of course, they know I'm a CPA. I don't need to talk about it. But then from the employer side, when they were asked why, you know you didn't ask about their business acumen and they and they said well you know it was a given that the man had more so it's kind of really completely biased in that sense And that's what Susan's TED Talk is all about. I'll put a link below. Did you look into the training that's available for women? There's a lot of very sort of targeted training for women. And, you know, I remember from the time that I was at Monash, it tended to be really uh, a lot about mentoring and soft skills development.
0: So in regards to the training, I think that women, there's costs and benefits to the women oriented training because part of it does give women the subconscious message that they need this leadership training and we don't see this for men, right? Yes. And men often, they need exactly the same type of training that women do. They need to work on their soft skills. They need to work on their communication skills So we did see workplaces offering this sort of training. Um, We also saw some benefits of coaching, particularly coaching when women came back from maternity leave. Mm -hmm. So what we saw in our, our stats there is that when women had coaching available to them, when they returned from maternity leave, that significantly improved their resilience um, and it also significantly reduced their turnover intentions in the workplace. So there's quite sort of quantifiable benefits to having uh coaching, particularly at times of pre-transition. Does that answer your question?
1: It does, it does. I still think that when women are going up and up and they're interested in in, and ambitious for their careers, they often forget that they are CPAs or that they're CAs. I have seen that in my practice. Mm -hmm. I have had to remind my clients that they have that commercial acumen, that they can use that to their advantage to get their next job. And they would tell me, oh, but I'm not a CPA anymore. Now I work in operations. Now I'm a project manager. And I'm like, yes, but can you imagine you're competing with lots of other project managers, none of which have a CA qualification, and you're not mentioning this why? And they go, oh, okay, I hadn't realized it. And it's really that missing 33%, which is the the business understanding, the commercial acumen, the banking and finance background that they may have, the consultancy background that they may have if if they come from a, a big four, which many of these clients that I'm thinking of have and they forget about it they you know they position themselves as generalists because they've been almost trained I believe that they have been trained to think that it's the leadership skills and their agile leadership style and all the sort of jargons they learn in in executive education that will get them their next job when in fact what the employer actually wants is trusting someone that has good commercial acumen that can run their business so it's so, i can think of a handful of clients i have right now that have that problem <laughs> and we fix that in the way that we present them on linkedin and in their resumes
2: and what we also find and it's complementary to this is not only what they will put in the application for promotion or for a job but it's also going for that job or applying for promotion. What we show and we find in our research is that men give it a go, whereas very, very, very often women, if they don't tick all the boxes, they would not even apply. So we have a self-selection because they don't try to go and they don't feel prepared in certain aspects. So we have also this this problem very strong in professional service firms where women, if they don't do 110% or they feel that they are more than ready, they will not even apply for a more senior role or for a different job.
1: Agreed. And and in fact, it's me saying this, it's not Carly or Alessandro. If you are at Deloitte or any of these firms and you're in the mid-tier consultancy role, you have the worst job of all of the people in there (laughs) because it's the busiest job with the biggest KPIs, really high responsibilities to bring in clients. You know, I'm talking about the senior associates to director roles. And if you go a step up, all of a sudden, you know, you're managing people. It's not just about your individual contribution as much. It's about your leadership and your ability to uh, run the project or run the client portfolio well, and I I try to convince sometimes cl- uh, you know prospect clients that come to me and they're thinking about applying for a more senior role in a consultancy firm or a law firm, and they 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 say to me, oh you know I'm not going to hire you because I've given up. I just want to stay where I am because I have young kids and it will be easier for me I mean this role is so much more responsibility and I'm like oh no every every role you stay once you have kids women let me tell you it will be hard regardless of where you are in the organization it will be really hard you're just going to be paid less and you're going to have more stress because the workload in those sort of sandwich middle management roles are so much tougher Then, you know, if you go a level up and a level down, yeah, so they they miss out because they they don't understand what the difference is once you go a level up that you are going to be engaging others and uh, delegating more and you will have more resources to to manage your personal life plus your work-life balance. I don't know if there is a balance, but I guess if whoever is listening, if you don't understand, get in touch with me. Let's have a chat <laughs> and I'll, I'll explain. But yeah, no, it's, it's really interesting to see the dynamic and the, the thought process that goes into making those decisions to go for promotions or not go for promotions. They usually make no sense and it's just a misconception.
0: I also think that for women to go for those promotions, um, that is when you need to have those strong informal supports in place, and to really know that you have, you know, the the proper leadership support um, and autonomy to fulfil those roles as well. So I think that that is another time when having those really strong informal supports make a difference in deciding whether to put yourself out there and to go for that extra level of responsibility. And, you know, just having formal policies and procedures, that's sort of not enough to help push you to those, you know, those higher levels as well.
1: I'm very interested in the women-to-women dynamic. You know, I have clients that are working for senior women and they don't find themselves supported by those senior women. Mm -hmm. And in fact, Alessandra, I know you do LGBTIQA research as well. I find it's the same with the queer, queer professional community you know I, I have some friends and they're all you know excellent at what they do but they don't get along and some are more senior than others and if there seems to be a generational clash between queer professionals is that something that is there research behind this or is it just just me anecdotally um, sort of figuring things out for my clients
2: so for the LGBT people what it also very often uh, uh, show in our research is that uh, very often these networks of LGBTQI tend to be very groupy. So if you don't belong to a group, that very often now network groups uh, are white, gay, male from middle upper class, where you feel excluded. So if you identify as lesbian, if you identify as trans, or if you are ethnic background, you will not fit uh, with certain networks. Yeah. And so... You will not feel supported by this very this new group that creates new dominant structure, we would say, in research.
1: Yeah, no, uh, I've I've experienced that with my son at the university he went to. He tried to join the queer committee and he wasn't accepted. (laughs) And I was like, You forgot to say you are Latino and Okay, you know you have to use all of the labels, <laughs> and he's like, "Well, too late now. I don't want anything to do with them anymore." <laughs> he felt really left out, and it was uh, sad for him. He just came out that year, so it was <laughs> he really wanted to join.
2: Yeah, if we can make a recommendation to companies looking at LGBTQI, is to be more open and having more diversity in their network groups. And very often, since it's such, at the moment, still a small minority, to go also across firms. So not only looking at PwC Deloitte, but looking more broadly in professional service firms and create events and spaces for everyone. So that uh, everyone can have a role model so that uh, a young lady can see that that even if you are a woman identifying as trans, you can make it until until partnership level as well as for the diverse spectrum of identities.
1: I suppose that there's a level of, you know, a tokenistic approach to diversity. Have you found that in your research? Is that still happening and is it still a big thing? Because I think that, you know, friends of mine from the queer community, they feel like sometimes they have been considered for a role. They got the role because of that, you know, his she or he or they are the token person in the company. And then, and then once they do get the job, there's this huge, massive responsibility. All of a sudden, they're in charge of absolutely everything to do with diversity in that organization. And also, I feel that when, you know, I have clients from uh, ethnic backgrounds uh, that feel like that there's that pressure for them to do their jobs plus something else to do with their ethnicity, their diversity of their background. It's almost like an educational role.
2: So, yes, it still happens, I would say. It's uh, quite stressful because uh, a lot of minorities still feel that they have been appointed on certain committees uh, just for their identity. And this is very strong in Australia for indigenous people. And we have seen in other research showing how they have to take so many committees on their shoulders, which they prevent them to to do their daily jobs and even advancing their career. And uh, we also had the case, uh, for instance, uh, in one of our interviews, that one woman that was in the audit committee of an organization, she was the only woman in this, and all the other were men. And uh, very often men would not listen to her. It took more than a year to make them accept uh, that it was not just because she was a, uh, they needed a woman on their committee to look pretty, but sh- that she could actually bring something to the table. So, very often, also these women that feel a bit uh, isolated at the top uh, because they are the only one there and they have been a bit uh, looked up just for what they represent rather than for their skills.
1: Yes. Well, it seems like we touched on almost everything unless, you know, is there anything else that you want to add, Carly, before we wrap up?
0: Um, The only thing I think I would add with how workplaces can better support women in the workplace, particularly like at the moment when we feel like women are particularly stressed because they have a lot of workplace pressures and a lot of home pressures uh, at the moment is for workplaces to really meaningfully acknowledge the impact of the pandemic on women and their output and to be authentic when it comes to caring about the well-being of their staff. So one thing that came out to us is that, um, you know, a lot of workplaces say, oh, you know, at the end of a message, oh, if you need help, here are the details of their employee assistance program. Now that sort of is not really seen as meaningful and authentic when it comes to caring about people's well-being in the workplace. So I think that to give that genuine message, you need to actively show that you're being authentic. If you want your staff, for instance, to you know attend a well-being course, give them time in their working week to attend that course sort of don't expect them to their workload not to be impacted for that week and for them to have to do it in their personal time just you know give those clear messages that we are in a pandemic and so our expectations of you are not going to be the same as they were you know prior to the pandemic and I've got a really good example of how this has worked. My husband started at HESTA, um, which is a very female-orientated superannuation firm, um, and he started a week before COVID hit and we had our first lockdown, and they were very, very practical about what they expected from their staff as a result of covid And if he needed to, you know, take time for carers leave, they made that really easy. They also said things like, you know, we don't expect you to work a 40-hour week at home during this time. And they sort of reviewed all of those expectations and those messages were very clear and very specific. And I think that when you get those messages, that tells you that you really are valued And that they really do care about your well-being. So I think that just reconsidering how those messages come across and making sure that they're practical and authentic would really help women feel more supportive. And men too,
1: everybody. Yeah,
0: and (laughs) men, absolutely. Families, you know, that the benefit definitely extends. But I think, you know, particularly given that a lot of, pressures have fallen on women's shoulders particularly when it comes to you know homeschooling and they've lost a lot of supports like their domestic help. feeling authentically supported by your workplace is really important at the moment
1: okay Alessandro, where can people find your research where should they go I'm going to put the links below but I want you to tell us and if you have any final thoughts I'm happy to hear them
2: sure so they can find our work on workingwomenandwellbeing.com where we have a website with all our research, key findings, our media, and also feel free to contact us. And a final thought for maybe if any of the listeners, also because it's very close to my heart, identify as a minority, as a sexual identity, like a, a woman who is transitioning, or bisexual who is a very invisible identity at work, uh, this and still is a stigma in many workplaces. Well, do not hesitate to reach out to psychological help because uh, mental health and and well-being is still very much a stigma. So many employers have uh, employees' assistance program in Australia or psychological support, but also talk, because this will help to alleviate part of the stress. Because uh, hiding and st- this uh, part of your identity, already your marginalized community, will really impair your well-being. So reach out and look after mental health. And uh, companies should do also much more to support the mental health of uh, their employees.
1: Thank you so much. And in fact, we have another episode in the job hunting podcast with Jacob Thomas from Monash University as well, where we discussed the change of pronouns during your professional career. Because I had a client who was transitioning and they had a change of pronouns and that made me reach out to Jacob and record an episode. So I'll put the link below if you want to follow up and and listen to that. And I'll also link below other women-related episodes that we've done with Susan Colantono that I mentioned before, Michelle Redfern, Jeff Ply, and well, there could be others I'm forgetting, but I'll link them below. Thank you so much to both of you. I'm so happy that we finally did this and that your research is out there for a lot of professionals to find out more, listen to this podcast and then reach out to your website, contact you if needed. So thank you for the work you do. Really appreciate it.
0: Thanks so much, Renata. Thanks for the time.
2: Thank you. Thank you to all the listeners. Thank you.